Welcome to the Young Anthology Podcast from the C.G. Young Institute of Chicago. The Adventure of Being Human, Beyond the Myth of Biological Salvation, with Polly Young Eisendrath, Ph.D. This is the opening lecture of a weekend given by Polly Young Eisendrath. It contains a one-hour lecture followed by another hour of Q&A. From the seminar description, we all sense a connection with the source that underlies our existence, whether or not we recognize it as such, and we all wish to identify with something larger than ourselves. Some feel this as a spiritual yearning, while others wish for fame or celebrity or the knowledge of a larger truth. The spiritual isolation and materialism, both economic and philosophical, of our times make it difficult to find trustworthy methods from institutional religions, non-traditional approaches, psychology, or philosophy for seeking knowledge of this source. However, our desire to help others and ourselves and our willingness to love deeply and authentically can offer the common ground through which we can find this knowledge, but it requires a dedicated understanding of our own suffering and its transformation. Instead of seeking such insight into our subjective lives, we Americans embrace popular myths of biological salvation and pharmaceutical soothing. It's not just that we seek instant solutions to complex problems. Rather, we have lost our taste for the adventure of human life, replacing it with ideals of economic and biological security and hopes for absolute control of our diet and health. This program offers a critique of this contemporary myth of biological salvation and presents accounts from psychoanalysis, Jungian and otherwise, and Buddhism of how embracing our limitations can open the path to transformation and lasting contentment. The weekend continues with part two, Living and Loving in the Human Realm, which is available in our store. Building on the presentation, The Adventure of Being Human, This workshop investigates the challenges of human life through an exploration of our difficulties with perfectionism, the three types of suffering we encounter, and the ways in which love challenges us to develop a true discipline of our hearts. Among other things, this program explores mythologies, the human realm from Buddhism, the inner critic of perfectionism, the value of the human sciences, and the difference between the two major sciences of subjectivity psychoanalysis and Buddhism. Uh, it was recorded in 2001, so you'll notice in the Q&A there's some discussion about contemporary issues. In the Q&A portion, questions were not microphones, so their volume was very low. I've increased the volume, but sometimes they're difficult to understand against the background noise, and the back and forth is somewhat disorienting because of the frequent changes in amplification. So if it's more comfortable for you to just skip the question parts, Polly's responses often stand on their own, so it may or may not be uh, something you feel you need to hear. So I've done my best, but just know that. Um, Polly Young Eisendrath, PhD, is clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Vermont Medical College. She is a psychologist and Jungian analyst practicing in the mountains of central Vermont, where she lives and writes. She has published 13 books, many chapters and articles that have been translated into 14 languages. You can support this free podcast by making a donation, becoming a member of the Institute, or making a purchase in our online store. So now here's the lecture. We are very, very honored to have Paul Young Eisendrath with us. 
and she needs virtually no introduction to almost anybody here that I can imagine. She is, of course, one of our most distinguished writing Jungians, a psychiatrist, a Jungian analyst, a professor, and known to all of us as a remarkable author. And I know you're here to hear her and not me, so without further ado, let me give you Polly Young Eisendrath. Thank you. Thanks, Jackie. I just had a few minutes to meet Jackie, and we just enjoyed each other so much, but I know she has to get off to some family matters. Is that okay for everybody? Um, when I decided to come here to speak to you about the spiritual adventure of being human, um, I thought that it would be a really kind of joyful, rousing evening. Uh, and then we had the events of September 11th. And uh, those events have actually affected all of us in all sorts of ways that we cannot yet understand, I think. Uh, and they have also affected me in my way of thinking about this, this talk and the weekend. Uh, simply really from the point of view that I think that it is even more critically important that we come to understand what it means to be human and that a lot of what causes the kind of difficulties among human beings that we see played out in these um, recent events um, is our inability to understand what it means to be human and the lack of a sense of common humanity uh, that comes about from not understanding. Um, I must say that I personally and spiritually and whatever think it's wrong to call any human being evil. Uh, I don't think that human beings are evil. I think we do some evil things. But uh, we are all motivated in very much the same ways. And uh, the Taliban are teaching us a great deal about envy. And if anyone here thinks that uh, he or she does not have any envy, well, uh, I hope you'll think again by the end of the, uh, the weekend. Um, because uh, envy is a form of hatred that's based on the sense that someone else has more resources than you have. And that there is no way for you to get those resources for yourself, and so you're, you're driven to destroy what the other person has or the other people have. And all of us have had these feelings, and people have them regularly in psychotherapy, and they have them very regularly towards their spouses, for example, uh, and often also towards their children, and children towards their parents. So uh, some of the feelings that um, have, some of, the, some of the terrible feelings that have been most uh, sort of on our minds and on display in the last month are very ordinary human feelings. And until we recognize them as ordinary human feelings and respect human beings as having a kind of inherent dignity uh, that has to do with the very nature of being human, I think it will be impossible for us to keep our world safe. And um, 
Of course, um, I, don't, I personally don't think anybody else is watching. I actually think it will be up to us to keep our world safe and that it is very possible for our species to become extinct, like 99.9% .9 of all of the species that have ever existed on the Earth. So um, that's a sort of sober beginning, but uh, it seems that it's inevitable for me to, to think in these ways now about what I'm going to say, because when I read through it uh, a couple of nights ago, I realized that my, the, my attitude towards this material has changed as a result of, of these changes, and uh, that my feelings are so serious. I wish they weren't. I like to be funny. I like to be lighthearted, but I have these very serious feelings uh, about um, what's going on right now in the world. Uh, and I, I can't imagine that anybody who knows what's going on wouldn't have some serious feelings. But it has affected um, what I want to say this, this weekend. Um, so I want to preface, I'm going to be reading a lot of this. It's, it's new for me, this particular uh, way of thinking. Uh, it's not sort of altogether new, but the synthesis that I'm making is new. Um, and the, the paper that I'm presenting tonight and what I'll be talking about tomorrow are related to uh, what I'm working on in a new book that is um, tentatively entitled From Biology to Buddha, uh, Lessons in Limitation, Love, and Liberation. And uh, the earlier version of the waking, or the waking, the working title was, um, the subtitle was uh, a short course in being human for those who are confused or have forgotten. Uh, and working with uh, my editor and my agent, we decided to change the subtitle because it seemed to uh, still kind of sound a little textbooky. But actually, the the whole reason for writing this book was to try to rework a certain rant that I was going through over and over again against biological psychiatry. Uh, and because I have been in a department of, of psychiatry that is very biological. Um, by the way, I am a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I've been teaching in departments of psychiatry for in the last 15 years or so, and have moved you know, along that path that many people have moved along who have been associated with psychiatry from seeing dynamic psychiatry as the core of what psychiatrists were doing to seeing it shift over to sort of biological as well as psychodynamic psychiatry to becoming completely biological and to almost the complete elimination of uh, any training in psychotherapy whatsoever for young psychiatrists so that our, our new generation of psychiatrists who were trained in, the, say, the last 10 years uh, aren't really capable of making the decision of whether someone needs psychotherapy or medication because they cannot offer psychotherapy and they know nothing about it or about how to evaluate for it. So consequently, you know, medications are, are given regularly. Uh, various kinds of emotional difficulties are ex explained biologically and human beings are really being seen in terms of organisms um, or uh, you know, genetic codes, uh, motivations uh, from instinct and from genes. Um, so in the atmosphere of that shift, I was angry. 
and I was getting increasingly angrier, and it seemed to be the biggest part of my passion in uh, terms of wanting to say something to the world. And I have, a, I have a very good literary agent who's been with me for all these years, and she just couldn't see that I had a book in this because she said I was too angry, basically, you know, that you can't just go out and rant and rave about what you don't like. You have to have something to offer in response to that. And so over time, I, I began to realize that what I wanted to offer was an understanding of being human as a spiritual path or a spiritual adventure. Now, uh, my own spirituality is, is connected to Buddhism. And I have been a practicing Buddhist for, well, I, don't, I can't subtract very well. I guess it really is since 1971, and this is 2001, so that's 30 years. Uh, and I have been uh, for many years a Zen Buddhist, and in these last three years uh, practicing Vipassana, which is the original uh, form of Buddhism going back to uh, the teachings of the Buddha himself, the living Buddha, Siddhartha. So that's my spirituality, and of course I hang around with people who have very different spirituality as well as um, a, a lot of uh, uh, devout atheists who uh, believe in atheism as a, a religion in the sense that they discipline and constrain their thinking in such a way that it always is expressed in uh, a non, uh, or in sort of a non-spiritual form. Uh, so I was interested really in being able to come up with a framework for understanding um, human life as a spiritual path that could speak to all kinds of people and um, that at the same time would uh, uh, express what is most important to me and what I have discovered in my own spirituality, not only in uh, practicing um, meditation and Buddhism, but also in doing psychoanalysis now for about 200 years or however long I've been doing it, which it seems like it should be 200 years, but it really hasn't been quite that long. But I spend lots and lots of hours doing clinical work. I spend at least 40 hours a week sitting with people and uh, listening to them, some people on the couch, some people face to face. And so, you know, that's a lot of sitting in addition to the sitting I do in meditation practice. So it gives me lots of, lots of opportunity to reflect on what I see both in myself and in other people. So, um, the um, presentation tonight and then tomorrow as well uh, is an introduction to this material that will be in the book in depth. And uh, your handout is, is a little summary. I, I don't want to refer to it just yet, but um, I will be going into uh, a, a lot more detail tomorrow uh, in relation to the specifics, especially of love. Uh, and how love is, in my view, different from compassion, and um, how uh, the discipline of love uh, is something that is extremely important in the uh, spiritual path of being human, uh, because it is a part of our ordinary life that we encounter over and over again, and it is something that we, I believe that we are not well prepared for. Uh, I think that, that uh, and I don't want to kind of give you too much of a preview, but I, I do think that compassion is something that is in our nature. 
um, and that uh, it is in our nature because we come into life as a couple. We come into life inside of another person, and we are very focused on the welfare of that other person from the very beginning of our lives, from the very first moments almost that we exist. Now, that focusing on the other and the desire to help another also can get very distorted. So even though uh, I regard all people as inherently compassionate, I, I, and, and therefore, you know, I would say Bin Laden and Hitler and Mussolini and all of the others care about what they're doing. And they are attempting to take care of the people that they regard as the important people. That there is no human being who really does not care, who is completely indifferent. And yet human beings can actually distort this natural compassion into all sorts of awful things. But so I regard compassion as something that is inherently within us, whereas love I regard as a much more difficult thing that we have to arrive at through discipline and an understanding of a larger framework because it involves commitment and it involves commitment to another or others uh, in the framework of accepting their weaknesses, of accepting them as they are and not trying to rework them. And again, if you, you know, if you have spouses or partners or children, you, you know how hard that is, that that is not something that you just come to naturally. Um, and even, you know, in our country, we even have difficulty loving ourselves. So uh, it's not just that we have difficulty loving others, but we have difficulty accepting and loving ourselves. So tomorrow I'll be talking especially about love. And tonight I'm just going to be talking about this issue of human life as a spiritual path. Um, now, one other thing before I begin, well, two things. One is that Jung's psychology is in, kind of in the background of what I'm going to talk about tonight. I probably, I don't think I mention anything that's specifically Jungian in what I'm saying, but it is, it does inform the way I think. Um, and I'd be very happy during the question period to, to answer any questions about, well, how does this fit with Jung? Or, or you know, this doesn't seem very Jungian or, or whatever. I love those kinds of questions. So uh, please feel free to ask them. Uh, and tomorrow I will talk a little bit more uh, about Jung. Um, oh, well, about Jung psychology, not about Jung per se, but the uh, Jung psychology uh, and the way that I use it in practicing um, psychotherapy and analysis. Um, and the, the other thing that I wanted to say in preparation for, for doing this is that sometimes, you know, at, at Jungian conferences that I've attended, or perhaps other places as well, but I seem to remember these times as Jungians, um, I've heard people say this thing that, um, that we are not uh, human beings on a spiritual path, but spiritual beings on a human path. Uh, and so I, I wanted to say at the outset that I do not regard things that way. Uh, I actually am very much more skeptical about us uh, 
I, I believe that we, at the very best, are human beings on a human path, and that most of the time we can't live up to that. And so I don't want to elevate us to spiritual beings when in fact we have a very difficult time actually being human beings, and if we were better at it, we'd have some dignity in responding to our species in a way that does not bring about the kind of murderous rage that we have recently seen. So I actually think that our humanity itself is a dignity, and that's quoting Immanuel Kant, actually, the philosopher Kant, who says that our humanity itself is a dignity, and that to live up to that is a spiritual challenge that we are not doing very well at at the moment as a species. Uh, as a whole group. So, um, so what I will be talking about then tonight is actually being able to love our fate in being human and how we could bring that about uh, and regard ourselves in the framework of human beings uh, and what that teaches us that might actually sustain us spiritually. So, I want to start out then asking how do we guide ourselves when things do not go our way? Every day we suffer the small insults of life. Traffic jams, family feuds, power struggles, bounced checks, sick children, bad hair. And on a larger scale, our hopes and dreams for our children, our relationships, our careers, our creativity may not be reached, although everything reasonable has been tried. No matter our age or our condition, life presents us with limitations. In response, we must change our minds, our habits, and our ideals. Eventually, we will face the big changes of life, too, loss of loved ones, illness, old age if we're lucky enough to live that long, and death. And of course, I did write all of this before September 11th, as I said earlier, so really we faced some terrible calamities in our limitation to control, to control things just recently as a society. We all know intuitively that the major, conditions, the major condition of life is change but we tend to ignore the implications of this fact in our own lives. In my last book, I showed women how to clarify what they want and to live by the knowledge of their own decisions. In this presentation and in the, we in the workshop tomorrow, I want to explore what happens when we, women and men, know what we want, are moving towards it, or have achieved it, but something shifts and things change. What are the valuable lessons that we can learn in responding skillfully to barriers in love, family, work, health, faith? Collectively, we are facing an enormous demand to change our habits. Making war and making babies have been embraced as the means of human survival for millennia. But now, neither war nor ever-expanding population will serve us well. Many of us feel a terrible fear for the future of humankind as we have become aware of our planet as a limited place with limited resources against a backdrop of a vast and seemingly unpopulated universe. Unless we learn to change our ways of life, we may face the ultimate limitation, the extinction of our species. 
So we're going to talk about the paradox of liberation. This weekend, I will explore the paradox of human freedom, that we must embrace our limitations in ourselves, in those we love, and in humankind as a whole, in order to be truly liberated. This paradox is captured in the ancient ideal of amor fati, which literally means loving your fate. Quite unlike fatalism or gritting your teeth while trying to endure, amor fati involves a skillful encounter with obstacles that increases our zest for life. Making use of our mistakes, losses, failures, emotional habits, and habitual blind spots, we become less afraid of change and more compassionate with ourselves and others. When fully practiced on a daily basis, amor fati leads to a flexibility and fluidity that flow with our ups and downs, our joys and fears, our pleasures and pains. When we can do this reliably, we reach satisfaction and contentment even in difficult circumstances. Let me illustrate amor fati with a little drawing, which is over there taped up in a very <laughs> sort of nasty looking way to the board, but it does illustrate uh, the, the things that I'm going to say. Now, the reality of life is constant and ceaseless change, which is illustrated in the wavy line number one there. This means that our moods, feelings, relationships, and health are not a steady state, but move up and down somewhat like a wave on the ocean. Most of us, however, have set our goals and our ideals, I would say all of us, set our goals and ideals as a steady line of demands above the normal ups and downs of life. So we have a sort of steady state of ideals that we set for ourselves and for others that kind of runs usually above the normal ebb and flow of the changing uh, nature of life. Some people set their ideals below, but most of us set them above. In the course of daily life, we all encounter some inevitable meetings of our ideals with reality, unless we have set our ideals impossibly high. And in fact, I think when people set their ideals impossibly high, that really is what depression is. They always fall short of their ideals. So they're, they're the, the normal ups and downs of life never even touch the ideals which are set too far above. But most of us actually find that reality sometimes meets our ideals. We feel great when we get what we want. We fall in love, we succeed. When life meets or succeeds our ideals, we're happy, even elated. And it looks something like this, number three there, where you see the, the line of the steady state of ideals kind of cutting through the up and down of the change in life. At such moments, we may feel that now I've got it right. Now I'm in control. But the meeting of our, deal, our ideals with life's circumstances is just an ordinary, possibly random happening. Life will change again because it is not a steady state like our ideals. When things once again go badly, we are disappointed with ourselves, with others. Then we blame ourselves 
We blame others or shame ourselves, and we suffer terribly and begin to doubt our abilities and our decisions. Now, just let me stay with this for a second and say that this is the state in which most people come to psychotherapy. They actually either have set their ideals in such a way that the ideals sometimes actually do meet with life circumstances, but then that doesn't go on. Things change, and their ideals aren't met. Or some people set their ideals far above, and so they're depressed, and they never actually know what it feels like to have that sense of success, like, now I've got it right. But the very big mistake that all of us make is in thinking that we've got something right. Uh, and Jungians tend to, I think, also make the mistake of thinking that there are certain moments that are spiritual moments rather than all moments being spiritual. So that in some moments we feel like, now I'm having a spiritual experience. And then we want to get back to that experience instead of actually having the sense that we're always having spiritual experiences. So. On the other hand, then, if we can accept the necessary limitations of life and ourselves within them, then we can live closer to the flow. We find that nothing, then, is overwhelming because everything is an opportunity to discover something new. Accepting our fate, we come to see what it means to be wholly human, fallible, mistaken, and weak, as well as capable, insightful, and strong. Human beings can never reach a steady state of health, youth, love, or stability, no matter which decisions we make, because life will change and no longer meet our needs and our demands. Tonight I will summarize a short course of eight lessons in how to embrace this faith and live within the wisdom of Amor Fati. This wisdom is accrued in the between spaces, where we can be renewed when we fully accept the necessity of change and uncertainty. In other words, it's really accrued not when we're in a peak experience, nor when we are at our lowest, but in the between, between the high and the low. In these between spaces, which are also between people, and I'll just say this because I'm not going to say it again tonight, I'll say it tomorrow, that a good deal of what goes wrong for us is that we don't accept how weak we actually are, so we don't allow other people to see our weaknesses. And so one of the between uh, openings for us is to actually make the contact with other people when we're not feeling so low or so high to reach out for the kind of help we need. Very often I find people try to solve things in their own minds rather than ask someone else. Like somebody will say, well, you know, I don't know, if I chose this job, well, it might mean this and this and this and this, and then I would miss that and that and that and that. And I say, well, why not talk to other people who have that job? Why not engage in some investigation? Um, it's as though we think, particularly I think in our cult culture, we tend to believe that we should solve things somehow inside of what we regard as our own mind. And so we spend a lot of time bumping around there in that sort of hall of mirrors and don't actually go to someone else. So we're not between, we're not between people. Between people, between states of mind, between pain and pleasure, between the extremes of control and despair, we find the essence of being free and flexible. 
This freedom comes from acknowledging our limitations and our losses, not avoiding or erasing them. We lose track of the between spaces in wanting to be perfect, and I will return to that one, in wanting to keep things under control, in wanting to remain stable and unchanging. Living in the between spaces means trying always to be open to new influences, even when things, or perhaps especially when things, are not going our way. Rather than resisting, feeling afraid or ashamed when we meet a difficulty, we learn to tolerate pain and loosen our grip on that desire for stable security that is often dubbed the ego. Living in the between spaces, we accept our faults, become more compassionate towards the faults of others. We see that we are never perfect, never all good, never all knowing. Then we become more graceful and content even in the most chaotic situations, changing when change is necessary, standing firm but not inflexibly when we must. This ideal of accepting ourselves is, however, nothing but a platitude until we develop the concentration, perspective, and skills that are involved in a more fatigue, and such abilities have truly been lost and forgotten. Um, I'll stop here to say that a lot of times when people begin a therapy with me, uh, I say to them in some form or another that we could avoid the entire thing if they could accept themselves. You know, and, and the whole thing is really about setting your ideals at a lower level and accepting yourself. Now, that sounds like a reasonable thing to most people. You know, most people, oh yeah, that's true, I know about that. And it sounds almost like a platitude. But in fact, it is the single thing that I will return to in the most repetitive way with everybody that I work with in therapy and with myself as well. Everybody wants to be somebody else. Nobody wants to be the person that that person is. Now maybe this is somewhat the difficulty of our culture as well, because here we don't seem to want the things we have, we want the things we don't have. We don't want to be the people who we are, we want to be somebody that we're not. But I think that may be actually a pretty human thing that runs through all cultures, but perhaps is emphasized in a culture where there are a lot of choices. So, um, you know, it's like you could really circumvent the whole of psychotherapy and all that money and, and all the hours that you spend if you actually could accept yourself. Uh, and if you would really just want to be yourself and not somebody else. But it is, it's a difficult thing. And then, of course, it involves, it begins to involve accepting other people as well, just for themselves. So, now, our forgetting the sort of skills and knowledge involved in Amor Fati is the result of a peculiar darkness that now surrounds issues of human weakness and error. We have become convinced of what I call the myth of biological salvation, a widespread insidious belief that it is possible to erase our natural, human, our natural limitations through summing up human life as a biological process that we can master. People have always wished for more control over their lives, to keep out the bad and to keep in the good. Now, however, we can claim that our wishes for control have a scientific or empirical basis. This vague biological ideology permeates much of what we think about 
what we want, why we suffer, and what love is in this period of time. This kind of ideology is actually bad science. Many of its claims are not grounded in scientific fact or rational argument. They are merely stories that persuade us that science can keep us secure, protect us against illness, and make our children ideal. Many highly educated people now believe that they would improve their lives if they could defy the aging process, that suffering is caused by neurotransmitters in our brains, that love is captured in the phrase attachment bond, that death is summed up as a flat line on the EKG. These and other beliefs about human life are stories from our new salvation myth that we can master human life through biology. When I use the term biology here, I am not referring to the actual science, which in fact is a pretty limited science because it deals mostly with weakly determining forces. It is not a science of strong forces like physics is. So I'm really not referring to biology, in fact, but I'm referring to this ideology that has developed in the media and popular culture. Stories of biological salvation tend to draw on a certain vocabulary without specific knowledge of the words. These are the kinds of words that are used. Adaptation, attachment bonds, biochemistry, brain states, brain structures, cloning, Darwin, disease, DNA, drug treatments, evolution, genes, genetic inheritance, hormones, mating behaviors, neurotransmitters, organ transplants, serotonin, survival of the fittest. The myth of biological salvation has poisoned our thinking with fantasies of triumph over necessary limitations and change. It has deprived us of understanding how to live peacefully, happily, and freely within the ordinary demands of life. A hundred years ago, we might have thought in terms of virtue or character that could be strengthened through tolerance and patience with our limitations. In a more contemporary vein, we might have thought of necessary changes and challenges as providing opportunities for personal growth or insight. In the case of character or growth, we believed that there was something good to be learned through encountering the difficulties of life. Now, as a culture, we eschew self-knowledge in favor of believing that science, especially biology, should give us what we want in order to overcome most, perhaps all, of our difficulties. Unfortunately, this has meant that many of us are frozen in our unhappiness, ignorant of how we contribute to it, although we may be taking our Prozac, exercising regularly, eating right, and following expert scientific advice about our children and our health. The fact is that science is no better than the human mind that creates it. Even our most refined and mathematical scientific findings always contain a certain component of error because our minds are fallible and limited. We will always make mistakes, even when we have machines like computers working for us. No science can account for every particular case within some general law or pattern. Actually, this is a philosophical conclusion that a British philosopher named um, Alistair McIntyre uh, concluded from examining the bases of, uh, of physics and, uh, to some extent, contemporary biology. He and another philosopher came up with what they call the um, 
principle of necessary fallibility. And uh, it, it shows that in roughly, I don't have it quite right here, but it's in a roughly a third of all cases in all scientific uh, problem solving, uh, the answers that are arrived at are wrong because human beings make mistakes. And so we can't get around that necessary fallibility. We will never be less fallible, no, no matter how good our machines get. The complexity of human desires, beliefs, actions, and intentions, the stuff of everyone's life, will always escape our scientific comprehension of it because of our natural human limitations. And human beings are the ones who are running the sciences and the machines, assigning the meaning to them. For this reason alone, we must approach ourselves with an openness to our mistakes, our weaknesses, and our dependence. This ability to remain open always permits us to discover something new. But in this period of time, we've forgotten a great deal about remaining open as a result of our belief in the myth of biological science. On one hand, we believe that we can conquer illness, old age, perhaps even death, through biological interventions. Actually, you know, before this crisis of September 11th, some of the big things in the news had to do with um, people who were uh, freezing themselves, uh, very large cryogenic institutes, so that when it was possible to defeat death, these people could be brought back to life and they could be given the proper treatment so that they would never die. And there were, there were statements being made by scientists saying that there are people living now who will never have to die. Um, I mean, it's just a ridiculous idea. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, there is simply no science to support it. There's no biology to support it. It's complete ideology. So uh, on the other hand, we are confused. Even though we think that we can defeat death and illness, we are confused about whether our particular form of consciousness, which is self-consciousness, is unique and valuable. Rather than distinguish its powers of creation and destruction from the thinking and behavior of other animals, we tend now to reduce our understanding of our own consciousness to what we study in the brain tissues and observations of other animals. On one side, we pretend that we could be gods with a kind of omnipotence and omniscience that could master life and death. And on the other, we describe ourselves as animals who are determined mostly through our biological reactions and processes. And yet the specific experience of being human lies between the animal and the divine. A famous line from the poet William Blake captures an insight to which I repeatedly return. In between, there are doors. The essence of human life itself lies in this between, and we ignore it when we aspire to use the myth of biology to force our experiences into unchanging categories, such as healthy or unhealthy, dead or alive, off or on. I believe that I have a unique opportunity to shed, life on, <laughs> shed light on how we can embrace our limitations as a means to liberation. I have dedicated most of my waking hours and some of the hours I should have been sleeping in my adult life to two different but related practices that look closely at our subjective experience, psychotherapy and Buddhism. These two practices have allowed me to see what it means to engage in a discipline of self-acceptance that permits us to live freely within necessary limitations. Psychotherapy and Buddhism complement each other in the ways they address our limitations and allow us to open the doors between. Psychotherapy focuses its lens on our personal emotional habits. Buddhism focuses its lens on universal themes of suffering. 
All clients come to psychotherapy hoping that the treatment will eradicate or remove the bad parts of their personalities. But the goal of therapy is self-acceptance and greater understanding of those offending parts. This allows us to move gracefully within the movement of life. We become more compassionate when the offending parts of ourselves no longer offend us so that we can take responsibility for them and lo and behold we find that we can forgive those same limitations in others. And this is again the thing that, that so many people resist when they do finally see their habits and their motivations and how those habits got to be there. That is, you know, what the emotional conditioning of childhood was like and what happened to them in childhood. When they do finally see that, they want to get rid of it. They want to say, well, now how can you get rid of this stuff? You know, I've got these habits, and in fact, yes, I had those parents and so on, but now let's get rid of it quickly because it's causing me a lot of trouble. And basically what I say is, uh-uh, no, we're not going to get rid of it. You're going to learn that you have it so well that you can have it gracefully, that you can have it with a sense of responsibility, that you can know, oh, yes, this is my weakness, this is my limitation, this is my old habit pattern, this is my trigger point. And, of course, you know, at times, I'll hurt you with those things. And so you take responsibility for what you do to other people. So this sense of self-acceptance, then, is really this ability to take on these offending parts and take responsibility for them. Buddhism, from its side, addresses the universal aspects of human limitation. That is what we would call pain, pleasure, and confusion in Buddhism. That is, pleasure is a limitation because it also takes us to a place where we feel like we want to hold on to things. We want, we want that to happen again when we have pleasure. And pain is a limitation because it throws us off our center. Confusion, because we don't know what's going on. <laughs> um, or it's sometimes called aversion, craving, and ignorance. Through meditative practices, we develop concentration and gentle, non-judging mindfulness in, in noting these states, pain, pleasure, ignorance, or confusion, and other states. Negative states become more fluid because we no longer reject them. And as this happens, we also awaken to new insights about the world and ourselves. That's all meditation really does for you, is to allow you to hold in your awareness states that you would have rejected. And the more you hold them there without judging them, the more fluid they become. They become in that flow of what's called impermanence in Buddhism. They change. You notice that the pain doesn't just remain there in that same way. You notice that your preoccupation, the blah, blah, blah in your mind doesn't just keep going blah, blah, blah. It changes to a different blah, blah, blah. And so the more you notice that, the more you find you can accept the things that are actually going on in yourself and you don't have to become somebody else. You can actually feel like, hey, I'm free to actually accept this. Um, many traditional teachings expand and illuminate these insights that we gain from this ability to perceive things with equanimity, and gradually we feel liberated because we are unafraid of our limitations and can move without hindrance through the world. This actually is the very essence of this form of freedom, is to move without hindrance through the world. That is, whatever th is thrown up in yourself or the world, you can move without hindrance through it. You can just keep going. Then you can keep your sense of compassion. You keep your sense of 
interdependence or being able to be in contact with others. Now, of course, nobody gets really that good as to always have it, but that's the goal. In this process, we discover that we are never separate from anything else. Everything, ourselves included, is an absolutely interwoven whole. Both psychotherapy and Buddhism are contemporary wisdom practices in which the truths that are discovered and taught are meant to affect all aspects of life. Um, this, is, uh, this idea of a wisdom practice was a traditional part of Western culture for a very long time until we began to split our sciences from philosophy and um, religion. And as we did that, coming out of the Renaissance, we uh, established a means to truth that didn't seem to be personal. And so now many people actually believe that they can embrace truths uh, say, for example, people take on the idea that depression is caused by low serotonin levels. They'll take this idea on not knowing anything about serotonin, not knowing anything about the research that's actually behind that statement, or uh, anything about the medications that actually supposedly affect the serotonin levels. But people will take on a statement like that and feel that that statement has no effect on their personal life. You know, that it's simply a statement of fact. This is, this is a fact, that depression is caused by serotonin. It's not about me personally, has no effect on me personally. I'm simply stating it as a fact. Now, of course that has an effect on you personally. But we have this peculiar way of thinking in our culture that divorces truth from our personal being. We feel that we can take points of view and that have no effect on us personally at all. Uh, we've, we also feel, uh, and this is something that I think is an important issue that we don't spend enough time thinking about, but we feel that our great teachers, our great scientists, our great artists, uh, our great, even our great religious leaders and so on, do not have to be accountable on a personal level for how they live. Their, their teachings do not have to in any way reflect themselves in these people's lives. Uh, and we could take Carl Jung as an example of that, you know. He has certain wonderful ideas that he brings to us, and we, we really shouldn't focus too much on how he actually lived with actual men and women and so on, because these two things are kind of separate. Now, that is a very questionable way of thinking. In the past, we would have not thought that way. Before the Renaissance, we would have expected that our greatest teachers would also, their lives would exemplify their teachings, and that they would be in that way, uh, in some way, examples, exemplary to the rest of us. So in this period of time, we tend to believe that, um, that, that fact and information and knowledge and so on have no uh, transformative effects on us. So psychotherapy and Buddhism are wisdom practices very different from that. In other words, in, in both of these, one simply cannot just talk about the ideas, one has to exemplify them in one's actual being. So you know, if a really good psychotherapist exemplifies in the way that person has already been through a good psychotherapy and has taken account of her or his own subjective experience and is able to do that then in the presence of other people so that one has some sense of actually showing in one's being the wisdom of the actual practice. And of course, in, in Buddhism, it's absolutely that way. I mean, 
you wouldn't get by with one tiny little statement that you couldn't show in some way that was a practical thing. So these are wisdom practices and they offer transformative rather than educative truths. The two practices have some overlaps and many differences. For this weekend, I've culled from the two what I believe to be the eight most valuable lessons in exploring the spiritual adventure of being human. These eight lessons help us gain the knowledge of our subjective lives so that we can accept ourselves. Now, if you just glance at the back of your paper, the lessons are there just in a summary way, and um, maybe we'll be able to talk about them some tomorrow. I'll go into more detail, but let me see, I don't think I have one of those sheets. Um, I'll just state them right now because I'm going to, to actually go over in greater detail some of these um, ideas. But the first lesson is you can't get it right. The second lesson is true love is ambivalent. The third one is yourself is not a thing, don't worry so much about it. The fourth one is true freedom is responsibility without resentment. The fifth one is no one is your opposite or your enemy. The sixth one is don't fear suffering, dependence, or weakness. The seventh one is death is not the end. And by the end there, I mean like the end of the movie, you know, where the end comes up on the screen and then afterwards you just get a few credits that flash by and then, that's, then there's all darkness. So uh, we tend to believe that death is like that, you know. We have a few minutes of flashbacks and then there's darkness. Um, somehow we get connected up with a movie. Uh, but um, there's much more to death than the end. Um, and eight, the eighth lesson is that everything teach and teaches and nothing offends. So when you can actually get to this point of living a human life as a spiritual adventure, at that point nothing offends you, not even bin Laden. Uh, you know, you learn from everything. Um, now these eight lessons help us gain the knowledge of our subjective lives so that we can accept ourselves. This knowledge includes the complexity of the human heart, the ambivalence of human love, and the importance of necessary limitation. Our limitation shows us that we all suffer because human life is in the between. It is never perfect and it can never meet our images of perfection and it can never meet our ideals as a steady state that would somehow ride above our experiences. When we fully accept the necessary limitation of being human, we wake up to something unexpected, reality. And it is reality that we are trying to escape through biological or any other salvation myth. The wish to escape limitation, remove the offending parts of ourselves or our lives, tends to trap us in a kind of harmful perfectionism that leads to blame. And it really is often self-blame, but also blaming others. So this first lesson that you can't get it right, which I will talk about in depth tomorrow, is, addresses the belief that there is someone out there who gets things right. You know, generally in therapy, again, people don't believe that they are going, it's really kind of interesting to me, these, these sort of obvious things that come up again and again. Nobody seems to believe that he or she as an individual is going to get things right. 
you know, people come in, I'll never get that right. I'll never figure this out. I've already messed that one up. But they believe that there is somebody out there who does, that there must be somebody, some guru or some master in a cave or somebody who gets everything right. And as soon as you get rid of that belief, it is amazing how freeing it is just to know that there is nobody who gets things right. It's actually great to know that because then you know that you know everybody is muddling along, everybody is trying to figure things out, there is no absolute authority out there, nobody has got it all together, nor will anybody ever get it all together because anybody who has a particular vision, including mine, will eventually be wrong because of necessary fallibility. And so then that will have to be revised, and there'll be a whole other rendering of some kind of knowledge of what it is that we're doing here. So when you really realize that, then it eliminates immediately a lot of shame and a lot of blaming. You know, so you realize you're just... <laughs> I'm in a funny argument with somebody I see in therapy right now, because I said to him recently, you know, I'm muddling along here like you're muddling along. And he said, no, I just can't believe your muddle is like my muddle. And so we are now investigating, you know, what, it, what, it, what he thinks my muddle is and why my muddle is better than his muddle. And one of the main things he thinks is better about mine is that I publish books. Uh, he, he actually wanted to write books also, so we're in the midst of that right now. But when you actually realize that nobody gets it right, nobody out there knows, then it's much more freeing not to know and to realize that it's a discovery process and that no matter what you discover, it will eventually be somewhat wrong. You know, it will eventually sort of, it'll, it'll come around to being wrong or limiting. So then you have to move on to something else. So, now, um, so, if we eat the right foods, exercise enough, meditate, go to therapy, do what's right for our kids, take our vitamins, we still won't get it right. This clarifies how and why perfectionism is such an obstacle to liberation. As an antidote to perfectionism, I'll explore the Buddhist concept of impermanence, which is the ceaseless change that is the basis of our world. Buddhism um, teaches that reality is not out there. It is not fixed and stable or different from ourselves. In other words, what, what I'm calling out there, I'm constantly creating and so are you. We have a consensus about what's out there. And as we change our consensus, so out there does change. So there isn't any out there apart from us. We are creating it. And as we move along, we create it differently. And uh, this gets into a whole thing, but <laughs> what I mostly want to say is that as your perceptions change, so does the world change. And that's a very practical thing. As you, and maybe you've seen this, you know, I mean, what's really quite remarkable is that you can be sitting across from somebody who looks absolutely ugly to you. You know, this person is looking, you know, I don't know, whatever, you know, they're looking weary, they're looking ragged, they're looking miserable and needy and so on. And then they begin to sort of take on a different, they start talking differently. I see this in therapy very often. They start to kind of coalesce, and there's a little bit of a sort of an insight or a light, and pretty soon you're looking at this very same person, and you're thinking, my God, I never noticed how attractive this person is. This person is really quite beautiful, and look at this and look at that, and it all is coming together in your perception differently because your point of view has changed. And so actually our very perception can change. Now, of course, if you 
go away to a silent meditation retreat and you have days and days and days to watch this, it starts to get really, really clear to you how when your perception changes, the world actually changes. Because most of the time, we're not watching how that happens. It's going on, but we're just not paying attention to it so closely. So the idea then is that we're never separate from reality. It's not out there, fixed and solid and different from ourselves. Rather, it's flexible and a part of us. Uh, so these following six characteristics, which I'm going to briefly introduce right now, that are listed on your hand handout, are the characteristics from the point of view of what I consider to be the really real, which is, from my point of view, the nature of human spirituality that these are the things that everybody will learn if they just travel the path of being human, keep their eyes open, and try to keep on discovering. The first one, and I've used some terms from Buddhism, and I've used some terms that come from psychology, psychotherapy. The first one does come from Buddhism, and it's the term impermanence. And impermanence refers to just exactly what I was talking about a few moments ago, the, cease, the ceaseless change that usually escapes our notice, but becomes obvious in our aging and the passage of time. That is, there is constant change going on, both in our perceptions and in the organization of our physical being. But these, these changes escape our notice because we're not paying close attention. I like to give the example of the pancreas, you know, as a, something that appears to be a physical organ but changes its cells uh, just about every 24 hours. And so it is actually a function or a process that we regard as a thing, pretty much in the same way as we regard ourselves as things, when we're not actually things. So this aspect of impermanence, of ceaseless change going on that escapes our notice, becomes obvious to us in our aging. We have the experience of time as being an arrow going in a particular direction. And yet we also know that time does not exist like that. But it is not only, let's say, our system of clocks and calendars and so on that, that persuades us that time moves, but it is impermanence. It is the movement of impermanence that we actually experience in our physical being as aging. So. Impermanence is a ceaseless change that usually escapes our notice. And change, what I'm calling change, are the obvious changes that confront us. Of course, there are aspects of impermanence, but they feel different. We feel these changes, especially in our relationships with others and in our inability to keep ourselves safe. That's what happened recently. You know, something changed and we all felt very distinctly that we're not able to keep ourselves safe. It was sort of thrown in our faces. But in fact, it's a fact all the time. Uh, often I say to people, you know, you develop these defense mechanisms, whatever they are, you know, this way of thinking and so on, as in a way to, to try to keep yourself safe and stable. Well, yes, in fact, that's true, I did. You know, that's why I became, in fact, so compulsive as I am, is that I was trying to keep myself safe. And, um, but the fact is, I'll never be safe. And so at least I can hold my compulsivity more lightly when I realize it's never going to function to bring me the end that it was supposedly designed to bring. So the experience of change and the inability for us to keep ourselves safe is something that seems to confront us. And it's different than the impermanence that falls outside of our notice. The, this experience of mystery 
which um, we could also call it particularity, but that's a kind of heavy term. It's the unique and particular being of all things and all people as we experience them. And this, this inspires us with a kind of an awe that everybody feels, uh, whether you have any spiritual beliefs or not, in the uh, in this sense that this moment won't happen again exactly as it is. And we tend to think of it in terms of this person will never exist again. This person's life has a particular signature, has a particular feel that will never be here again. And when we experience that, we feel a kind of a, an awe or a kind of opening, a mystery. We don't know how that could be. And so that sense of mystery, which um, is, I think, such a, an important part of being human is available to all of us. And we tend to uh, sense it more at critical moments, you know, when someone has died or when someone moves through a life transition, they grow up, they get married or whatever. We have that sense that, well, what, what this person was will never be again. But it's always there, that, that sense of unique and particular being about everything and every moment. Limitation is the constraint, the limits under which we live, but especially the limits in our knowledge, our lives, and our resources, perceived often as fear, regret, or sorrow about what we don't have or what we have not done. That's the way many people experience limitation in, in this culture, at least. You know, people say, well, I never traveled to California, or I, I didn't own a yacht, or I didn't uh, finish my college degree. Uh, we experience limitation in terms of regret. Uh, but of course, everything is, as, as I said many times so far, always limited and always constrained, especially our knowledge and our sense of control. Interdependence is the ways in which everything depends on and interacts with everything else. This, in order to actually experience interdependence, you have to have some sort of some kind of concept of a webbing interconnection. Uh, some people get this through the physical sciences, some people get this through a sense of relationship, some people simply get this as a spiritual insight, but it is at some point, if you pay attention, uh, you will actually notice that everything depends on everything else, and that everything that you say depends on all sorts of contexts which you haven't invented, and so there's no such thing as a completely original statement, that everything you eat has come from many, many places and touched many hands and gone through many uh, you know, transformations with many kinds of both natural and human um, uh, connections, so that every moment, if you just kind of looked at that moment, is webbed out to all sorts of other things. So. If you pay close attention to that, you start to realize that you are not separate, that you are never separate, that it is an illusion that you are separate. And so it's an illusion that we create for some good reasons, but you can begin to explore this illusion through these between spaces, between people, between states of mind, and so on. You begin to see that there's more fluidity to what you thought was your little separate self than you uh, would typically think there is, that it isn't really contained specifically in what you regard as your body. Uh, so all these connections then awaken us to our absolute connection to all other things and our lack of separateness. 
Now this, this interdependence and all of these conditions culminate then in uh, this, this condition that's inherent in my view in human life, which is compassion. And I regard compassion as the truth. It's really the truth of everything, but it is the truth specifically of interdependence. Human suffering teaches us the reality of compassion as the lack of separateness between ourselves and others. Helping others helps ourselves and helping ourselves helps others. And the other thing about suffering, if you pay attention, you notice that everyone is suffering. And so that is an absolute connection between us and all people uh, everywhere. And we would recognize that if we were with those people. Uh, we would recognize their suffering through our compassion, through our connection to them. So these six conditions then are what I regard as reality. And I could capitalize reality there, and that would be fine with me, or put it in all caps. Uh, and since I'm a, uh, an avowed constructivist, uh, it may seem uh, contrary to constructivism that there is reality. But the reality that I take to be reality actually has within it the idea that we construct our experience uh, and our knowledge in this limited way, constantly with each other. So the mistakes of wanting to get things right and protecting ourselves as unchanging separate little selves um, are part of a common human struggle. From my experience of sitting thousands of hours in therapy and meditation, I've become convinced that human life is an adventure in which our limitations constantly challenge us to clarify reality as ceaseless change. If we can meet this challenge in a fully liberated way, we will eventually discover a knowledge of the source of our own existence, whether we call it God, nature, or truth. In other words, if we actually can deal with the challenges that we're faced with through limitation and regard them with this sort of equanimity or interest, we will eventually wake up to the source of our existence. I believe we all feel a connection to this source, even if we do not recognize it. Some people feel it as a spiritual yearning. Others wish for celebrity or fame in a way of becoming something larger than themselves. Some feel an urge to do more than the mundane tasks of life, perhaps to help humanity. However we feel this connection, we hope the connection that we feel, whether it's even for celebrity or it's for some greater knowledge, we hope this connection will take us beyond ourselves. And so for me, this is, again, one of these obvious facts about being human that everyone feels connected to a source, but people experience it and express it in different ways. Ironically, well, we hope that this connection will take us beyond ourselves, but ironically, it is limitation that will help us find our way. Our losses, our failures, our mistakes, and our weaknesses open us to interdependence and impermanence and the knowledge that we are always dependent on others and a context that goes way beyond anything that we imagine as ourselves. So, just a couple concluding remarks. Um, every day, I struggle with people's shame, despair, and anxiety in my profession as a Jungian analyst and psychologist. Though people seek psychotherapy for many reasons, including loss and illness, they are usually most distressed about the ways in which they themselves or their family members are falling short 
of some imagined ideals or standards that promise perfection, security, or total happiness in their own minds. Anguish, depression, rage, and anxiety are among the troubling responses that we feel in our desire for perfection. If these were only passing feeling states, they would not be a great problem, but instead they stick like glue to the voice of perfectionism that often escapes our notice. But what would our lives be like if we all became unafraid of claiming our faults, exposing our weaknesses, admitting our mistakes? If we could speak and listen without judging, but simply pay close attention to what was being said, then almost nothing could throw us off center. In fact, we could even come to enjoy our limitations because they lead us to rather funny situations and encourage a good sense of humor. And this reminds me of an anecdote about Italian-style love for humanity. This was something that a friend of mine told me, actually, about her 20-something, actually, it was, his, it was the man who told me about his 20-something-year-old son who works in a very demanding, high-pressure tech business. Well, maybe he doesn't now, but he did when I heard the story. And Sam, as I will call him, was flying to an important business meeting with an older Italian colleague. Sam is Jewish, actually. When they set out in a rush to the airport, he and his colleague were already late. In the midst of the harried car trip, Sam's friend said suddenly, do you like cappuccino? Yes, replied Sam, thinking it was an odd question. A cappuccino would be nice now, said the colleague. What? <laughs> replied Sam. His colleague told the driver to pull over to a coffee house. Since the Italian man was his senior, Sam dutifully followed him to have a cappuccino, which Sam did enjoy. When they arrived finally at the important meeting, uh, the chief executive, a tall, imposing Italian man, stepped out and confronted the two men. You're two hours late. Sam's friend replied, we stopped for cappuccino. Was it good? The executive asked, oh yes. Well, good then, came the happy response. <laughs> So uh, this was, this was uh, something that this, uh, this guy from Los Angeles, this Jewish guy from Los Angeles, could not understand, this sort of Italian attitude towards they were already late to the meeting, they're rushing, they stop for the cappuccino, and then the executive says, you know, he confronts them angrily, but then when he finds out that they had this pleasure, he's happy. Love for the joys of life brings tolerance for our shortcomings and failures in all kinds of situations. In all that I do, I try to cultivate such enthusiasm for being human. The very word enthusiasm itself, whose root entheos means in God, encourages me to be grateful for this incredible opportunity to be human. Many of us confuse the state of having God within with some kind of promise of transcending or getting rid of suffering and failures permanently. Instead, I believe that God within means a full embrace of our weaknesses, a desire to learn from them, patience with ourselves and others, and an invitation to cultivate a sense of humor. This is the kind of love that we might imagine God would have for us. So uh, that concludes my introduction to <laughs> Human Life as a Spiritual Adventure. And um, it is about 10 after 8, and I think we're here until 9. And I would like to make it your choice about whether you'd like to talk about this now or take a break and come back and talk about it. Your choice. Anybody have an idea?
I don't know. <laughs> Any cappuccino? <laughs> I don't think so, actually. The, the Jungians aren't Italian enough. <laughs> yeah, I should have asked you, Mary. Any cappuccino? So, do you want to stay? And then maybe we finish in time to leave before, or we can stay as long as you want. I'd be interested in your questions, uh, reflections, um, particularly challenges. Uh, yeah, Bridget. This may be a challenge, but I, when I first started hearing you speak, I thought, so then why are you a, a psychologist? If, if you think that we should just accept our Because <laughs> you know, I can get paid for saying that again and again to people. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to get paid for saying that? Um, yeah, it's really, I, I, I think that, that the reason that I'm in this line of work actually, I mean, of course, it's you know, changed my view of why I do this, has changed over the years. Uh, I think at the, be the very beginning, you know, I just wanted to help with suffering. Uh, as it's gone on, what I've realized is that a lot of what I do actually is um, helping people accept their weaknesses and their difficulties and accept those as inherently part of themselves that they can't... What happens is if you don't accept your own weaknesses and your own sort of habitual blind spots and complexes, then you make them live in someone else's house. You project them into a partner, a child, an enemy, a different nation, or you make them live in your own backyard, you never look at them, you know. And when they're living in your backyard, they can come and grab you. Uh, if they're actually in your house, what I often say to people is, you know, when we come upon something that a person doesn't like, and uh, we come upon those things very often in therapy, because people come for that very reason, uh, to talk about the things they don't like about themselves, uh, you know, my, my analogy is we have to build, you have to build a bigger house, because you're going to have to make room for this in your house as well. You know, otherwise it's going to live in someone else's house where it really doesn't belong. So that challenge of actually accepting who we are, and it really means accepting the particularity of your own being, you know, including the parents you had and the way you came into life and, and the way that developed and all of the things that you didn't do. All of those go into the acceptance. Uh, that is actually, for me, the biggest challenge in what I do. And the reason that, that I continue to do it with such enthusiasm is that it's interesting. It's interesting how people refuse to accept themselves. <laughs> oh, there's a, there's a lot of questioning of everything. Um, He hadn't really accepted himself, had he? <laughs> no, I mean, he was, he was still complaining about things. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, I, I actually, my, my teachers have been Americans, Philip Kaplow and now Shinzen Young, who's um, actually a Jewish guy from Los Angeles. He sounds like it's Chinese from his name, but uh, I, I have actually had the experience that uh, originally with Philip Kaplow in 1971, there was this kind of rejection of psychotherapy that was part of the Zen uh, movement here in America. It, was, it had only recently come here from Japan, at least the one that I was practicing, which uh, was the, the uh, form of um, Zen that Kaplow was teaching. Um, over time, so many things have changed. And uh, most of the American um, Buddhist groups, whether they're Zen or they're Tibetan or they're um, Vipassana, uh, not only accept psychotherapy, many of the teachers are themselves psychotherapists, like Jack Kornfield, for example, and Sharon Salzberg. Uh, they, they're practically, in some ways, uh, the the uh, criticism is that they're confused with psychotherapy, even you know that they're that the two languages uh, kind of blend together, um, and. Uh, you know, something that's happened with Buddhism as it's moved from one culture to another is that because it doesn't actually have, Buddhism is not sort of a, a religion of a great deal of doctrine. I mean, there are doctrines and, and you can get into those in a big way, but by and large, you know, it's a religion of practice and it never has fought any other religion. Uh, if, it, if it comes into a, a culture, it sort of takes on what's there already and becomes friends with it and even incorporates it so that when uh, Buddhism came to China, Taoism was already in China and the two just kind of blended together to become Chan, which was Zen and, and so it went on evolving. Well in America what Buddhism has met is psychotherapy. And so, you know, in America, uh, what, what has happened is that Buddhism has taken on psychotherapy. There's a dialogue, there's um, a debate and there are, you know, as with human beings always, there's a lot of conflict. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the Asian people who come from uh, an exclusively Asian background do find all of this annoying. Um, over time, the Dalai Lama has become very accept accepting of psychotherapy and so on. I think in the beginning he found it annoying, you know, partly because uh, these other cultures don't have something like this, this kind of... Uh, what I call the science of subjectivity, which psychotherapy is, and they may think that we are really being very egotistical, just sort of contemplating ourselves. But uh, in fact, the goals of psychotherapy are really quite similar to the goals of Buddhism, and many people uh, who are Westerners who practice it do, do recognize that now. But you, know, you may have been with a Tibetan Lama, or, or you might have been with an Indian person, I don't know, whoever it was, he didn't sound like, you know, he was complaining about Westerners who were also probably coming to his retreats. <laughs> so he hadn't quite worked out his wrinkles. Yeah? Could you say some more about uh, the tendency to kind of really identify with a biologically determined diagnosis? And you know, it seems to become very static, you know, for the person or family members. Yes. This is what you're talking about, the, the, you know, the clinging to that. There's so many medications now that are effective in treating some of the symptoms, but it, it seems, I mean, I'd just like to talk on Yes. Well, I'm going to 
recommend actually a book that's just come out, uh, which is called Healing the Soul in the Age of the Brain. Um, and the subtitle is Becoming Conscious in an Unconscious World. Uh, it's by uh, a Freudian analyst who actually is a very good friend of mine named Elio Frateroli, an Italian, um, who likes cappuccino. And uh, he, he actually, uh, he's got some stuff in print there that, that is uh, uh, just exactly the way that I would say it as well. I'm also, I'm also working on the chapter in, in my book called The Myth of Biological Salvation. And basically it goes something like this. Um, we, we have made some really big mistakes in buying this, and we really have been buying a psychopharmacological view of particularly psychiatry, but that has affected our whole culture. Um, and what we have been buying has actually been advocated by pharmaceutical companies as they, I mean this is, I'm just going to go into the economics of it for just a brief moment, I'll come off of that because that's where my rant goes actually. Uh, that goes, you know, the pharmaceutical companies have bought the hospitals, they've bought the managed care practices, they have shortened every kind of intervention down to, you know, does, what kind of medication does this, this thing need? And, uh, with, and taken out the whole sort of aspect of being human and being able to look at why we suffer and what suffering means and so on. So there's a whole economic side to this myth of biological salvation. But just sort of stepping out of that, what has been appealing to people ideologically, I believe, is that we then don't seem to have so much responsibility for our symptoms. You know, we, we have these symptoms because of our uh, genetic or uh, physical conditions, and uh, we then could say, well, you know, I'm rude because I have ADD. Uh, or, you know, I can't keep my, uh, I, I sort of, you know, I mean, really, that's one of the things I do hear people say, but the other thing that I very often hear people say is, I'm depressed because depression runs in my family. Actually, that doesn't make any sense at all. People are not depressed because depression runs in their family. Uh, as, as Elio points out, and of course he's a psychiatrist, and so he has the credentials, uh, he's also a psychoanalyst, that um, at the very most what we could say is that one of the effects of depression um, is lowered serotonin levels in some depressed people's brains. As it turns out, it's only really in about a third of the people that are ever tested who, who say that they are depressed, who report depression, in which the lowered serotonin levels actually exist. But they are probably, I mean, they are most certainly the effect of various kinds of inner conflicts that have seemed impossible to accept in those individuals that have then affected their physical functioning and have over time caused a great deal of stress for that individual's brain functioning. Uh, you know, so these physical conditions are effects of underlying conflicts in one's psychological condition, and those conflicts may have been there from early trauma and stresses in life and so on, so they're pretty much lifelong conflicts. Uh, yes, they do have physical concomitants, and in some cases, medications are helpful for those physical concomitants. But even when the medications are used, they don't actually resolve the symptoms. They will kind of mask uh, anxiety. And uh, that masking can have good and bad sides. For some people, it's very important. 
for a period of time when they're getting into, for example, psychotherapy to have help with medication. Um, what Elio says, and what I would agree with, medication should never be given without psychotherapy, but certainly you know, can be kind of company psychotherapy. Uh, all, of the, all of the knowledge that we have about brain functions, about how brain functions are connected to various symptomatology and so on, is extremely limited. Much more limited than ordinary people know. We do not know, for example, nor do we, are we even close to saying that schizophrenia is a genetic disease. That is actually a very tentative hypothesis if you look at the science supporting it. And the people who actually do the research, if they are actually honest and not working for the pharmaceutical companies, will say that there is not a good hypothesis for schizophrenia. Um, there are a number of factors that contribute, but we don't know, actually. Thank you. What I've heard this evening has been wonderful. And also for your comment about schizophrenia. My father died, became uh, ill when I was nine years old, died in the mental hospital nine years later. And the diagnosis was dementia breakout, which is the form of schizophrenia. I got a book by this thing, you know, schizophrenia. I took that much of my life. Sorry, I think this is the one that came out recently, mm -hmm. years ago, in the United States, mostly in application of medicine. Right. And you, you gave me a further answer to that. And you opened up a whole lot of this is about blaming parents. I never done that. Mm -hmm. There's another question I'd like to ask you. Um, I'm, I'm a statistic here, closer to death than probably anybody in the room. I'm 87. I have a fall. Oh, 87. Congratulations. <laughs> and I, yeah, I noticed that you capitalized the end. Uh -huh. To me, uh, I've been telling my wonderful wife, it's my second wife, you've been married eight years, we're still honeymoon, <laughs> that I want a fun day. Uh -huh. And Pastor Adams has written a very fine essay, not, not sar sarcastic, but just saying death should be something that's celebrated. So I'm, I'm a rebel in a lot of ways, theologically, as you can readily see. I don't see death as an enemy of man at all. Great. And I agree with you that if we don't change in a lot of ways, we will be responsible for the extension of the human race on this planet. Right. And I'm a Presbyterian minister, don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for the, the also the um, testimony about your father. Because, you know, I think that these are the kinds of things that people really need to be clear about. And that uh, uh, I also have in my background some people who would be categorized at least as very serious borderline personality disorders. And my grandmother committed suicide. And so there are many things in my background that would predispose me if I were to go on the biological uh, explanation would predispose me to a severe mental illness when in fact I know that these things actually have to do with psychological functioning. There may be a predisposition for people to be sensitive but for heaven's sakes that sensitivity can lead to all sorts of other things and not to some kind of mental breakdown. So you know we, we seem to be persuaded right now about these biological explanations but the, the One of the really important things that I want to say about this, because I really didn't talk about it in depth tonight, is that 
if you take on any kind of biological ideology, at least try to understand what it is you are believing. At least ask yourself, what do you know about the science that lies behind that belief? What do you know about the research that's been done on that? What do you know about the theory? And then, you know, you don't have to go into a great uh, uh, sort of process of investigation because actually to even understand some of the most uh, basic statements that are made, you would have to spend hours and hours kind of becoming an expert. But you can look on the internet, you can begin to go into some discussions that people are having about these things, and at least try to understand what it is that you are saying when you say something like depression is a biological disease, if you're going to say that. At least understand. Um, there are many, many good books out there that are critiques of this. They do not get a lot of press because they're not backed by the pharmaceutical companies. You know, and a lot of the journals now, the medical journals, are owned by pharmaceutical companies too. So it's really difficult to get outside of that loop. And the people who are working hard to get outside of it don't get a lot of media time, don't get a lot of funding. So you know, I, I think it's important for, for all of us to try to understand what kind of myth we are embracing. In every period of time, we embrace myth. You know, the myth of our period is science. And it is a wonderful myth. I believe in it as a very important way of understanding what is going on here. But science also has limits. And within science, biology has some very serious limits that we're transgressing all over the place in our beliefs about genetics, about psychopharmacology, and lots of other things. And you wanted to ask a question. I'm um, trying to resolve something in my own mind. You mentioned earlier that that's a good time to go to somebody else, such as you. Um, and, and here's the contradiction. Uh, earlier on you said that um, with depressed persons, uh, the bar was always... Very high. Inevitably set too high. Then more recently... Uh, you mentioned uh, in, in reference to the biological ideology that there are instances of, of let's take a real dramatic one, uh, incest, mm -hmm. uh, where uh, out of that uh, childhood experience there uh, arises uh, most usually um, lots and lots of you know, uh, unfortunate consequences. Right. One of them, one of which common one is depression. Right. Um, now, and, and, and that pharmaceuticals can help, but of course, uh, so can psychotherapeutic methods. I'm wondering, I'm trying to resolve these right. Right. contradictory statements, that um, do you think that a person who's gone through that hell, that trauma, and um, the... Or, or, that, that wound and the resulting additional wounds that are almost inevitably, you know, follow that in life is it continues to be depressed because he, she has set the bar too high. Um, it's, it's really hard to, to answer like a yes or a no answer, so I'll try to give you some answers. Um, the, let me just speak about setting the bar too high briefly and, and then um, I'll go to other things. By setting the bar too high, uh, sometimes people don't know they're setting the bar too high. 
usually what it looks like is the individual actually would like to be living somebody else's life entirely. You know, I mean, it's not, it's like that particular life that that individual is living isn't the life that that person wants to live, when the, particularly when there's a severe depression. And the person feels hopeless about living the life that he or she wants to live. So sometimes that can actually be, uh, in the, here I'm talking about a pretty extreme situation of setting the bar too high where, where a person may not even know that that's what's going on. Um, and such a person may have experienced trauma and such a person may have experienced incest. And that, but in that that's, that that's an underlying though um, uh, habit of that person's mind to more or less say, uh, the life I'm living is not worth living because, you know, it's not the life I want to live or, you know, and I can't reach the one I want to live at all. So there's that piece to it. There's also the other piece, which is that many times when people have experienced childhood trauma, uh, what is most destructive is the way that they try to keep it out of their awareness. You know, either, either they keep it out of their awareness through dissociation or some kind of repression that they don't even know about. And so then it's, it somehow gets repeated either in what they find themselves doing or they get attracted to people who are doing the things that they didn't know they've already experienced. Um, and that's very discouraging. Uh, and other times... Um, there is just a kind of inhibition in terms of engaging in life uh, that comes from not wanting to deal with the thing that happened in the past. Um, so all of these things would look like depression, what we would call depression. Uh, and um, some of them might be helped by medication. What, what I find, and I'm going to say this just because you've asked me, but you know, I'm not sure this is true, but it's been my own rule of thumb anyway, that uh, when people are, are what I would call known perfectionists, that is, they kind of recognize their perfectionism. So all I have to do is say something that would indicate, I see you're a perfectionist, and they go, yeah. You know, I mean, they kind of know that. They see the indecisiveness over time, the the way that they don't finish things or the ideals that they've set that are impossible to reach and so on. This is pretty known to them. I find in general they are not helped by medication. Um, and that when they take it, they're disappointed in the effects. Uh, partly because it doesn't meet their ideals. <laughs> and it's like still another, still another uh, thing that doesn't meet their ideals, which is particularly discouraging because they were looking to this one last thing, you know. Um, so usually when, when they're sort of, when they are known perfectionists, I generally mm, kind of, you know, say let's kind of stay away from that for a while so they don't have to get more, more disappointed. Um, but the people who are not that way and, and feel very depressed, especially people who have a kind of anxious depression that is based on trauma that perhaps hasn't been integrated or known or accepted or whatever, sometimes the medication can be extremely helpful. Um, and uh, eventually they can leave it behind. But it, it, it comes along for a while. So does that, can I get at it? Um, I wonder if you could comment on how myths such as the biological determinism myth achieve ascendancy. 
And, and in relation to that, both psychotherapy and Buddhism have been criticized as so interior as to result in a certain passivity in the outer world. You know, self-acceptance, knowing thyself, then you can be content, and then ascendant myths may take over. Right. Um, so just some comment on the interaction between that more self-focused acceptance in Buddhism and psychotherapy, but the other part of your argument, which is that a myth has taken ascendancy, mm -hmm. which is not in our best interest. So how do we ch uh, change our perceptual world? Let me talk about the, the salvation myth first, and then I'll go to the other one. If I forget, remind me, because I might forget. Um, the way that, that I look at first at myth is that myth is the big story that we tell ourselves about reality. In any period of time, there's a big story. And in the past, you know, sort of the way you could sort of look at it in the, in the more ancient past, we told ourselves big stories about gods and goddesses and, and powers that were out there controlling us. Gradually, we told ourselves that those, those powers really weren't in control of us, that we were actually in control of our own actions. And then we gradually moved to trying to understand who we are and what the world is. We kind of separated out these categories and we, and we started investigating things in terms of rationality, logical processes, and empirical fact through science. Um, my, my sense is that the scientific myth, which is really the myth of our period, has been somewhat overtaken by what I would call the economic myth, which is that you, know, you can buy your way into some kind of stability and security if you buy the right things, and so then, but how are you guided to buy the right things by science? Um, my, my feeling is, or you know, my own, these are my observations just based on my experiences with people, that uh, we make a big mistake in salvation mythology. Whenever, whether it's a theological salvation as, you know, in um, the, uh, Islamic beliefs about salvation coming from certain actions that even if those are distorted interpretations, uh, these people that are martyrs and, and kill themselves in order to accomplish things, they believe that they're reaching a salvation by doing that. Uh, similarly, I think that uh, we make a mistake in our period of time to, to believe that science will save us, whether we think it's gonna save us from making mistakes or death. You know, whether it's going to save us from our own sort of uh, problems with our knowledge or we think it's going to save us from our physical uh, vulnerabilities. Um, if instead of saying that, uh, that anything will save us, if instead we regard ourselves as inherently limited and we realize that that inherent limitation is teaching us and so we are interested in it, we are interested in it both in our own lives and in our relationships with other people, that the ways that we are limited, we can get help from others, that we can also learn things from the ways that others are limited, et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of endless, actually, once you flip it over. Then you can, <clears throat> then you can call on our various knowledge systems to help with that investigation. So, you know, uh, we can use our science to investigate our physical vulnerabilities, our psychological vulnerabilities, our knowledge vulnerabilities. I, I actually think that what 
Buddhism does very well when it does it well, and what psychotherapy does well is to take a scientific attitude towards our subjective experience. It asks us to study our subjective experience without judgment. Just watch it. Just look at it, kind of like a scientist would. You know, we're going to look at it objectively. We're going to look at our subjective experience objectively. And so I regard these things as scientific, you know, that they, they use the same scientific method. However, they are not, neither of these, neither psychotherapy nor Buddhism is a salvation mythology. They both really are looking at the human being as an inherently suffering being that won't escape that suffering. Now, um, uh, in, back to, to the question about psychotherapy and Buddhism as internal. That was the other question. Uh, the, the, the fact is, in my, again, my experience is that that's a distortion. You know, that, that it, but sometimes it's a distortion that, that practitioners make also. It's not just a distortion that outsiders make. You know. um, if psychotherapy works well, what it should do, in fact, is to, is to engage you more fully with others without hindrance uh, in the world and in relation to yourself with others. Uh, part of the problem that we all have in engaging with others is that if, if we do all of these things, uh, like you know, wanting to reach certain ideals and standards and believing in salvation and so on, then we blame others for what goes wrong in our own lives. And we then also shame ourselves rather than allow ourselves to know what we're doing. We just hide what we're doing. And consequently, then, we, we actually are inhibited in our abilities to relate to the world and to others. So um, that's the way I see the goal of psychotherapy, is to get us moving to do that. Um, it also, the, the very important thing about therapy is that it doesn't actually solve your problems. It just allows you to see what they are. And then you can actually take responsibility for them, and you can do something about them, which includes getting, you know, knowing where your weaknesses are. You get help from other people to do that. You know, if if I know that I'm not very good at task A, I can get help from the people around me to do task A. Maybe I'm good at another task, and I can do that for other people. So that's the part about psychotherapy. The part about Buddhism is is something like this: the very first form of Buddhism which is uh, sometimes called Hinayana, which is the small vehicle, or sometimes it's called Theravadan, the teaching of the elders, it actually did focus on individual salvation. But by the very practice of Buddhism, it became apparent to then, you know, they were, they were actually most, all of them were celibate monks practicing it, so they had a lot of time to, to be aware of this. Uh, it became aware to, uh, to it, became uh, apparent to them that there is no such thing as individual salvation, that it is impossible. And so that you cannot actually save yourself because you are inherently connected with everything else. And so nobody is saved until everything is saved. So that is what's called the turning of the wheel towards Mahayana Buddhism, which is like the great vehicle, which is that, every, that the reality here, what's called the Dharma, it's the law, it's the truth, it's reality, is interdependence. And so it's impossible to save yourself because yourself doesn't exist. <laughs> so, you know, it's a constant engagement with all beings. And, uh, and of course you do that by the particularity of yourself. Whatever yourself 
sort of your being is. Your being does certain things, is good at certain things, not good at other things. That's the way you engage. Um, so it shouldn't be isolating. You know, it shouldn't be, uh, neither of these practices, in my view, should result in people either holding themselves above other people, like I've been analyzed, but my spouse hasn't, you know, that kind of thing, or uh, result in people, you know, spending too much time on retreats. You know, it's, uh, that's not what these things are about. They're, they're actually about re-engaging, recognizing our interdependence, recognizing our weaknesses, developing our compassion, and in that way, continuing to develop, being human. Uh, so that's... And in that way, a new myth can ascend? Well, who knows, maybe. You know, I mean, I would like to see this sort of, uh, some kind of non-salvation story coming up here. I mean, I think we're going to need one anyway. But, uh, you know, uh, so it's, I, I hope that that happens. You know, I, um, I think that, uh, that actually our scientific knowledge, our, our framework and our methodology, I think are good. If we just took them uh, with the constraints that they actually require, uh, we could come to a place like, Many, you know, many of the greatest physicists actually came to a place of recognizing the source. And uh, I, I think that, that that happened because scientific methods are pretty good for investigating reality. Um, and so we can use them also in relation to our own subjective experience, and we begin to see impermanence, change, interdependence, limitation, those things come up quite naturally if we do it well. So I... I do think that the scientific method is actually a very good one and that it, it relates very strongly to psychotherapy, um, at least in the way that, that I regard psychotherapy. Touch briefly on what's going on in the world today and your objection to the use of the term evil. Could you speak a little bit to how we're projecting perhaps well, you know, I think this is a time of real confusion. I mean, I have to say that I myself am also confused. So I, um, I, I really... I really and just kind of I, I kind of writhe when I hear our president say the evil one and things like that about Bin Laden, um, because you know I mean for one thing, I taught my children that you never say you know my children my youngest child is twenty seven you never say there are evil people there are only evil actions you know I mean that was something that was going around a long time ago, so I I thought we all knew that you know and we wouldn't go on television saying there are evil people anymore we know there aren't evil people. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it just kind of makes me really deeply uncomfortable to hear people talk that way about other people. Um, but, you know, that's going on, and, and that's the way people are talking. And so there's, there's also a fact of the matter, and it will have consequences, and we are already involved in those consequences. Um, on the other hand, I also would not want to be under the rule of the Taliban. Um, I regard very, uh, you know, I cherish my rights as a woman to be in a culture where I can speak. 
And uh, I think that these rights that we have only recently achieved as women in the West are very fragile and are not at all kind of, uh, you know, written in stone. And uh, these, these various regi regimes that, that we are fighting right now uh, have notoriously bad practices in regard to women, whom they consider evil, <laughs> you know. Um, so there is also that confusion that I find in myself about, now, you know, the question comes up, like, how do you negotiate with the Taliban? Well, a woman, of course, wouldn't be able to. You know, so in a certain sense, we don't even get asked the question. I mean, we would not be sitting down to negotiate with the Taliban because we couldn't. Um, so there are these questions that are being sort of raised by our current situation that I don't think we have answers to yet. Uh, and then in addition, there's the other issue that, the, that, the, that, you know, that Western monotheism uh, actually involves the exact same God that's involved in, in uh, Islamic monotheism. So the Judeo-Christian tradition is dealing with the same God as the Islamic people are. And so, you know, that's an interesting question or issue. Uh, and so, you know, it's not as though they've got a set of, of beliefs that are inherently different from the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, so there are questions then about how can people believe these kinds of things and act these ways. I don't think we have answers. I, I do think that the Taliban are a very good illustration of envy. Uh, and probably the most important teaching that I've gotten from this so far is that, uh, you know, when human beings uh, hoard their resources, other people are going to be very envious. And we've been hoarding ours. And until everybody gets a little bit, uh, you're going to always have that kind of hatred uh, that comes from envy, where people who don't have what other people have want to destroy those people who have it because they can't possess it for themselves. And so, you know, I do think we should be able to at least get that, that we have to make resources available to people in a more equal way or we're always going to be uh, at risk for envy. But, you know, how we do that or, or what the next step is, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, um, I, I, I just hope that, that the, the one thing I think is really kind of good news is that there are so many nations actually talking to each other that weren't talking to each other. And maybe, you know, some of, because, you know, it is mostly guys, maybe these guys are going to recognize that they all need to talk to each other at least and that, uh, that, that there are some good things that come from that. And, you know, maybe things will move on in a good way that way, but, you know, maybe not. I don't know. So, oh, yes. Do you really say that the Taliban or Osama bin Laden and his compadre's uh, point of view is based on envy of our situation or a detest of our situation as they interpret or as they see it under Islamic principles and Islamic teachings? 
Well, <clears throat> being a psychoanalyst, <laughs> I would say it's envy. Um, that the envy is rationalized in lots of ways, but you know, just looking at the conditions in which the Taliban are living, and uh, you know, this is not true of Bin Laden because he has different conditions. My own view of Bin Laden is that he's probably um, has a very severe personality disorder, but <laughs> that's that's my view. <laughs> um, uh, which one? Uh, probably some kind of borderline personality disorder. Who asked me the question? But probably some sort of borderline personality disorder with transient psychotic states and some aspects of paranoia in those states. But uh, you know how he got there. I don't know. I, it's not easy for me to see. But you know he has uh, 53 siblings and. You know, uh, I mean, he has an unusual family. You know, lot, lots, of, lots of siblings, and and so you know, the conditions might have been less than wonderful in his growing up. Um, but he did have lots of money. Uh, but the a lot of the the people that are are sort of fighting in the most dire ways, apart from the ones who might have psychological difficulties, are people who uh, really have so few resources. And they really have come to hate their lives, I believe, from having so little that they, they just actually cannot experience very much joy, particularly, and this is something some commentator, some point a commentator made, he said, actually, this hatred for Americans in Islamic countries has really only come about since satellite TV brought pictures of our society to Islamic countries, which happened, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, and it also happened to be around the time of the Gulf War. So not only did they see, did they begin to see things on CNN and MTV and all, but then they saw American planes bombing other Islamic countries, and they don't understand why this is happening. They don't have sort of education to understand it. And there was a lot of real hatred for what we have, what they don't have, and in their view, the power that we have and the way we use it, which is to, they believe, to control Islamic countries. So I do think a lot is rooted in envy. Now, it may be rationalized in other, you know, in other beliefs, just like we all rationalize our envy. You know, I mean, we, we, when we envy somebody who has things that we don't have, we often then don't say, I hate that person because, you know, he has a, what, a, a place on Martha's Vineyard or something, you know, which may be the actual thing that we are feeling. But we say something like, uh, well, I disagree with anyone owning an estate that large. You know, it's, this isn't something that individuals should have. We get into a kind of a, a rationale for it. Um, so I, I kind of think that envy plays, I mean, I do think envy plays a big role. But that's me as a psychoanalyst, you know, I'm not a political analyst. Um, I think the well, hatred is a actually envy is a form of hatred. Is that was that your question? Well, I, looking at what little I know of Islamic uh, theology, so, so, so it seems that it teaches down a great number of rules about how to live. Yeah, we break flagrantly disregard, and thus they and the whole lesson disrepute and made us for that reason. Though, Theological reason rather than as a rationalization of their ending. Well, my, my understanding is that there's a, quite a continuum <coughs> in Islamic belief. 
and that there are people who believe that Islam is a religion of peace and that it, it should actually be very respectful of other religions and that it should be respectful of other people and their right to believe what they believe. So that it, there is a continuum there from that side to the other sort of more ruling-oriented person, which I guess, you know, I do not know much about Islam, but I do know some things about Christian fundamentalism just from treating people in therapy and kind of reading about it and so on. And I, I don't think they're so different. Uh, and what I find with Christian fundamentalists is often the driving feeling is, is envy, is, is this hatred based on what other people seem to be able to do and have that they cannot do and have themselves. And then that gets rationalized into, you know, people shouldn't do this, this should not be allowed, and this, this should not be allowed, and so on. This is probably more complicated than that. But um, I think that envy does play a role in all for sorts of fundamentalist beliefs. Um, and at the same time, I think that ignorance plays a very big role in all sorts of fundamentalist beliefs. Um, yeah. With regard to that, coming uh, from a very large family myself, and a family in which there are fundamentalists, um, I I wonder if the problem, the hatred comes out first of all, envy over power. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, his whole issue, or not whole issue, but a major thing there is power. And in our, in, in the Gulf War, mm -hmm. I think that was a key point. The other thing is, from my experience and observation from my family and other situations involving fundamentals, and even my own experience of feeling bound by the rules. Mm -hmm and the absolute in feeling whether that I will go to hell if I don't observe those. And then, as I put it in one of my writings at one point, why are they having all that fun? Right. Well, I'm not. Right. And so it became their evil, their bad. Right. them because they don't have to live by the rules I do. And so it's envy then. I mean, you're envying them for having so much fun, and you can't because you're living by the rules. And you can't do what they're doing, so you hate them for doing it. And then the rules, and then you, yeah. And, you know, I, I think this is a really important thing. I like the way you said it, because a part of what <clears throat> strikes me about all um, political movements that become cruel and um, disregard the dignity of human life is that they always lose their humanity, their sense of humanity. And uh, I think probably it's out of some kind of move like that, you know, that there is, that there are in these movements various kinds of rules and also power that's imposed on people. I mean, sometimes, like with Saddam Hussein, sometimes they're secular, you know. Um, people think that, that Hitler's movement was secular, but actually he was trying to create a religion. He was creating Nazism as a religion that would go beyond Christianity that he felt was a religion of the weak. And uh, so he was imposing what he was imposing as a way of making a more perfect human being and a more perfect world. Uh, but of course it had the same effect uh, that a lot of the fundamentalist beliefs uh, have. So um, I do think there's a way that the loss of humanity is at the core of these kinds of hatreds. And people then can't feel the connection to their species, their compassion for other human beings. They stop feeling that and in place they have these rules and this, this kind of hatred.
three things here that when taking the next step with looking at um, why do they have all the fun, then what comes about then is an arrogance. Uh-huh. A judgment. That's right. A judgment. A judgment. Yeah. Arrogance. Yeah. We are right. And it's a yeah, it's a kind of a righteous judgment, um, but it is a, it is also a form of perfectionism. Then, you know, it's like we have the right way, and we're going to impose it so that everybody can actually have the right way. Um, actually, this does bring me to remember the name of a book that I wanted to recommend to people. If you haven't seen it, it's a very difficult book to read. It's called Humanity: A Moral History of the Twentieth Century, and it's by Jonathan Glover. And what he does is trace all of the uh, terrible cruelties of the 20th century. Uh, he's a philosopher and uh, he asks the question, how can we at this point, you know, how could we at the beginning of that century when we felt we were going to live in a more enlightened way have brought about the cruelest in the uh, most uh, violent century in history of the 20th century and uh, he more or less answers two things. One is what we have been talking about, the loss of humanity in all of these movements and the feeling of being morally superior or righteous. And then the other thing is just the, um, the kind of elixir of power, which is actually uh, frightening, even in some ways more frightening, how sexually exciting uh, various kinds of uh, sadistic power is. And uh, he actually has a lot of um, uh, records of people who have observed and interviewed and so on, various uh, torturers and terrorists. And um, the other side of that is that uh, experience of power that goes with uh, torturing and terrorizing other people. Um, so, I mean, it's a very, very difficult book. I could not read it straight through. I still haven't read the whole thing. Um, but uh, reading the beginning of it and then the last third, which is on Nazism, is uh, you know, uh, possible, I think. They're, they're all, then he, he does China and Bosnia and all these kind of current things. Now, of course, this recent uh, business was, happened afterwards. But it's called Humanity, a Moral History of the 20th Century. And it really gets at the issues of how can we say that we are acting in a moral way and treat other people in the ways that we treat people? And he really means that question sincerely. How does it happen? And by investigating it, perhaps we can understand then what allows people to again and again do this to other people. Um, you know, building on that, really, one of the things that I'm trying to figure out is why people in this country can't understand why others can't. Yeah, I can't understand that either. <laughs> well, you know, I have had the same difficulty. And because people ask me in therapy, you know, I just don't understand. What, I think like... Why not? You do it all the time yourself, you know? Why can't you see other people doing it? But um, really, there was an article that was in a recent New Yorker by Jeff Goldberg, and it was on uh, Mubarak and Egypt. If, I don't know if anybody ha has seen this. was like maybe two issues ago. It was, just, it, was, it was the second issue that came out after the World Trade Center events. And uh, in that article, 
he interviews a number of Egyptians, and he ends with this man who is a uh, Egyptian writer, who is who is very who's really quite open-minded, and was still making trips to Israel to try to normalize his relationships with uh, Israeli writers at the time that all these things have taken. I mean, he's gotten on all sort of blacklists and all. You know, he's in trouble. This writer is, but he's still trying, and uh, and so. Jeff Goldberg asks him, what do you think happened? And he says, you know, he says, America is a beautiful place. Uh, the people there, he said, uh, the Arabs may say they're arrogant, but he said, actually, they're very happy. He said, they like all their inventions. They like to show off their inventions. <laughs> they had all these technical things that they're very proud of. They're showing them off to the rest of the world. And they just don't seem to be so innocent about you know, people being jealous of them. And he said, you know, um, uh, it's not that uh, uh, Americans, this is his point of view, it's not that Americans actually were trying to have power over people. They were actually just showing off. And they were showing off their talents. And he said, ultimately, um, Bernard Shaw, in his introduction to St. Joan, said the reason that Joan of Arc was burned at the stake was simply that she had a lot of talent, and other people couldn't stand it. And uh, you know, it's like Americans just don't seem to know that yet. And he also says that, um, he says, you know, perhaps you were a little too progressive. Uh, in, uh, it's a wonderful thing that uh, these guys all took flying lessons in your country and no one asked them any questions about it. It's truly a beautiful thing, but um, maybe it's a little too progressive for, for this time that we're in this historic period. Maybe you need to get a little more paranoid and we, get to, we need to get a little more open-minded here and it would balance things out a little better. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a view from the outside and I, I can sort of see his view as well, that it, it is true that that we, we got very excited about all these things that we were making and, and bringing out and all, you know, uh, the computers and the technology and the internet and the this and the that, and we're bringing them out to the whole world and the whole world supposedly is going to enjoy them. Well, you know, they, they don't really have enough to eat in some places and they're not going to enjoy the internet. And uh, so, you know, it may be that we were innocent in certain ways, very naive about our feelings Coming out also, I think, during the Clinton period of time, we baby boomers were hoping to get rid of the CIA. We were hoping to get rid of uh, this sort of spying stuff. We wanted to trust other people. We think, you know, that people should actually be able to sit down and talk about things if things go wrong. And I do think that played a role too. Uh, it's a kind of naivete that I personally am happy for, but maybe it really was a little too progressive, you know. Maybe we weren't paranoid enough. Uh, and maybe we should have asked some questions when people want to fly airplanes but not learn how to land them, you know? <laughs> Which is apparently what happened, <laughs> so... Uh, yes? A uh, couple of comments and questions. One is, um, as you talked about uh, developing a myth of non-salvation, it seemed to me that um, in my understanding of Judaism, that that is a, a non-salvation myth, that the goal is of being living a good life and being a human being and treating others well, and that that is that's the end in, in and of itself. Some some branches of Judaism, that that's not the total picture there. Yeah. Right, right. There's salvation in Judaism also. 
<laughs> in okay, the more orthodox, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 the, other is, the other comment, it seems to me that uh, really good psychotherapy even goes a step beyond uh, self-acceptance to, uh, I think, what comes next, which is the, the ability to treat oneself lovingly which, in response to the thing about uh, being an inward kind of thing, hopefully leads to being able to treat others more lovingly. Right, right, exactly. Actually, step beyond self-acceptance. Right. Um, and the question is, as a group of psychotherapists, what's your sense of how we're doing at being teachers who uh, live what we teach as opposed to just teach it? Well, um, Actually, I, I, I do have a paper with me that I could make available to people. Um, and I'll have it up here at the end. And it's called When the Fruit Ripens. Um, uh, what's the rest of it? Alleviating Suffering and Increasing Compassion as the Goals of Clinical Psychoanalysis. It was a paper that was published in uh, a recent issue of um, uh, Psychoanalytic Quarterly. Um, it's sort of embarrassing that I publish as much stuff as I do. Sometimes I think to myself, uh, I've hardly ever said anything that I haven't published and I don't even really necessarily intend to do that but people say, oh, do you have a paper? And then I send something in. So this is a paper that actually talks about that. But I think that this is what is the main issue from my point of view in this period of time is if you are a psychotherapist who believes that what we address is the alleviation of suffering, please go out and speak against the biological model. It, there are so few people actually speaking out against this model that it has absolutely eaten up psychiatry. I mean, it's, it's so sad that sometimes I actually just weep when I talk to residents because they would like to know how to talk to people, but they're not being taught that anymore. And they can't even get supervision from people like me because they don't know enough to come to... to I mean, they'll come to supervision and they'll say to me, can you teach me how to do active listening? Well, I think, well, actually I could, but I, I don't think that's the best use of my time, you know. Um, sometimes I give them things to read and so on, but uh, we really need to speak up. We need to go out. We need to go to the general public. We need to go to various... Uh, conferences, uh, whatever your profession is, social work, psychology, nursing, psychiatry, and say, look, you know, this is terrible what's going on. And so many people have bought into it, and as a culture we're buying into it, and as a profession we're buying into it, and it seems like sometimes even psychoanalysts are buying into it. They also are trying to kind of get their little piece of the psychopharmacological cake, or the brain science cake, or whatever, without looking at what are the implications of this? Why not stick to what we know about, which is the science of subjectivity? Managed care, and yeah, managed care doesn't pay for it, and the psychopharmacological industry totally opposes it. And so there's another issue. Let me just make one point about this, about managed care. Now, I do realize I'm in a special spot because I write books, um, but I think that more people can practice outside of managed care than do. And you know, it's important to organize for that, get into groups, figure out how to do it, educate the public, and do it because otherwise, uh, you know, we're just confined to this. Yeah, we're just that. Yeah, as psychiatry has done, it has sold itself down the river. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me that the 20th century has produced probably the most successful uh, 
movement that describes what you're saying in the 12-step recovery movement. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Something, but I mean, across the world today, the kind of success that that's had right. through talk therapy, if, if you will. Right. Uh, right. Completely uh, free. Yeah. Did use some the kinds of pharmacologies that were seeking in the fifties to do that. So. Right. I mean, it's amazing. The recovery movement has been an absolutely amazing movement, um, and I think that still from the point of view of dynamic psychotherapy, it, it does lack things that you, that you get in dynamic therapy. Uh, I'm a great believer in it, but I also see a lot of people that have been in 12-step programs who do not know that they are responsible for their own actions. They do think that somehow their recovery comes from being with the group and that if they don't actually go to their meetings that they will automatically fall into um, a reenactment of their addictions. So there's also, uh, you know, there's a, a kind of a, a limit to what 12-step can do, but it is a wonderful example of something that has been, that has happened all over the world, is free, and has happened through talking, and is very different from what we take to be fact about biology. Yeah. Related you talk about that whole thing taking over. But what about the people who are not following that? What about things like that program and people who are dropping out of that mm -hmm. pharmaceutical model who are finding their own way, whether through financing their own psychotherapy uh, or uh -huh. or finding paths well, I, I th they don't speak up enough. You know, they, they're, they're doing it in a way that I think feels maybe to them illegitimate. You know, uh, I mean, what I find is, well, you know, again, I'm in these specialized groups of like all therapists or all students of psychiatry or, you know, and what I find is that it's really hard for people to stand up and say, this model that we have embraced is really wrong and harmful to us. Almost everybody stands up and says something of the sort of, uh, you know, uh, it's got to be a combination. You know, there there are a couple. You know, there are two sides to every coin. I was giving a talk in our department of psychiatry uh, that I call "Suffering from Biobabble." That's the, the the name of the talk. It was it was something that I got to sneak in as a grand rounds because uh, they didn't know what I was going to give as my grand rounds. Um, and and there were people in the audience, and a lot of the faculty came. And there were people in the audience that were just outraged at me. They just really felt that that I was undermining the very fabric of psychiatry, even to come as a lowly psychologist because I am on the clinical faculty and say these things was just outrageous, you know. And uh, some of my my colleagues who actually are friends of mine tried to soften it. You know, by saying, you know, don't you mean that actually there is the, you know, sort of stress diathesis, diathesis model? Don't you mean, well, there's stress in the environment, but there's also, uh, you know, a biological tendency? And basically what I said is, you know, there's no dialogue like that going on. That, that's in your own mind. There's no dialogue going on between the psychotherapist and the psychopharmacologist. The psychopharmacologists have won. 
It's over. The dialogue is over. You know, in, so in the culture at large and in psychiatry and in a lot of audiences, uh, the dialogue is over. People have already made their conclusions. And so it's hard for people who have a different way to speak up because there's almost no vocabulary for it. People can't stand up and say, well, here's the way it's been for me. As it used to be possible to do that. It was only 15 years ago uh, when people would say things about personal growth and insight in public arenas. Nobody uses those terms anymore. You know, it's, it's like embarrassing to say personal growth. People are like, what? You know, because, and now this is not true in the Jungian world. This, I mean, in the, in the, the, but the Jungian world is so small as to be, you know, infinitesimal in the larger world. So it's, uh, it's really, I think, speaking up is so important on this issue. And to do it with your friends at dinner parties, you know, in the professional life, uh, everywhere you can, it's like testifying or something, you know. We're losing, we're losing something that uh, we, we really worked hard to even get a little peek at. And we're losing it already. Yeah. Then I've got to stop. I think. <laughs> yes. 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 I'm a psychiatric nurse. I've worked inpatient in the acute care setting for 19 years. I'm also an LCPC and I'm trying to start an out-of-pocket practice. And I talk to manage care every day. That's my job. So I've got some perspective. I totally agree with you. Today I was asking the medical director, don't you have a resident that knows therapy? Well, they don't. Right. And so I got someone that I'm supervising, who's actually a TR, getting her degree to do kinds of therapy with this particular patient. However, having said that, the acutely mentally ill, the people in acute manic episodes, the severely psychotic, the people that have severe suicide attempts, the people that are violent and are coming in more violent yeah. and more suicidal and more, I mean, there's an acute mental illness going on. The psychopharmacology is a definitely integral part of the treatment. Totally. But it is not the treatment. It is a part of the treatment. It's the rest of the part the rest of the part of the treatment isn't there anymore. Yeah. But it's intervention. It is it is germane. Now with twelve step, because we also have substance abuse and detox center unit, now trexone is Right. Right. Psychological to help people reduce the craving. So I think that while I agree with you totally and I do speak up about it all the time, because I go way back so I know what we had and what we don't have now, I think that there's a mistake in erring too much to the side of that's the evil and it should be, you know, if it's not our way, then it's no way. There has to be an integration. No, but the, see, the integration we've lost. I, I worked for 12 years at the Institute of Pennsylvania Hospital, which was a psychoanalytic hospital that also used medications. But everybody in the hospital had an attending physician. Everybody had therapy. That hospital is gone. It is the oldest mental hospital in the United States. It was sold, and it's now a shopping mall. Because many of these hospitals that provided psychotherapy for the most acutely ill people, along with the medication, could not afford to go on in business. And so they don't exist anymore. So if you actually want to get psychotherapy along with the medication for people who are acutely ill, it is almost impossible. And even people who have a lot of money and can go for treatment anywhere have very few places they can go. And certainly the, the, uh, you know, the mental health public... Uh, well, no, no, no the, the system that we had before Reagan... I've forgotten what it was called. What it was called, the... Uh, 
the community mental health system, that's what it used to be called, um, offered psychotherapy to the poorest people along with their medications. That is so gone that I couldn't even remember the name of it. You know? Well, it's so diminished that it's that you know, from the point of view, say, of the people that we deal with in Burlington, which does not have as large a homeless population as a large city would, those people do not really get therapeutic help. They get counseling, they get case management. They may get a social worker visiting them to check on their medications, to see how they're doing in their, in their living arrangements, but they do not get any kind of intensive relationship with another person that might be followed over time, with a few exceptions. You know, there are a few exceptions. But if we could get back to the place that we were in 1980, that would be terrific, because then there were two sides. There aren't two sides anymore. Now, I'm sorry to say that that's wrong. We really do have the outcome studies. We really do have the science. There were a lot of meta-analyses that show just that, that long-term, that is more than two years of therapy for severe anxiety and depression conditions is more effective long-term than any medication by itself or even the combination. And there are such studies, and they're reported in the journals, but they're not funded by any large organization or any kind of medical or psychopharmacological organization, but they are there, and they're in the literature, and I'd be happy to give you the references for them. Just as we have been able to show scientifically that psychotherapy, particularly intensive psychotherapy, does work for these conditions, just at that moment, there was this huge economic shift, and there was no interest in that science. And it is actually out there. And, and actually, the, this book that I had recommended, Healing the Soul in the Age of the Brain, does cite a lot of the studies and also shows the studies that have opposed these, the uh, findings of particularly the antidepressant studies. But those studies don't get published. Or they don't get published in the big journals so that people actually cite them in the media. So the science is actually there for psychotherapy. Now, what is not there is the economy. And I don't know how to rectify that. The grants that people get to study psychotherapy are the kinds of grants that you have to scramble for from NIMH, and they are, do not have much money connected to them. Whereas the grants that people get to study various kinds of antidepressants or various kinds of, of anxiolytics and so on have lots of money connected to them, plus free lunch and everything else. And that's, that's kind of the condition of what we're looking at economically. But the science is there, and that's the good news. It's just that people don't read it. Doctor, I don't yeah. have a question. I we have to stop. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org.
Thank you to our 2020 donors who gave at the contributing member level and above. Barbara Anand, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Jackie Cape, Brian, Eric Cooper and Judith Cooper, Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, James Fidelibus, John Korolewski, Marty Manning, Diane Sherwood, Deborah P. Stutzman, Deborah Tobin, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, Gerald Weiner, Karen West and James Taylor, and Ellen Young. If you would like to join our generous community of supporters, just go to youngchicago.org slash give.